guys good? All right, amen, amen. You see the new double doors over there? Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? It's going to change the flow of the lobby. We're really excited about that. That's part of the lift, obviously, of the work that we're doing with that. So um, we're excited that this is happening at the same time. But um, I actually have uh, a really, really cool announcement. Um, just for the record, for those of you who don't know, my name is Tim Gillespie. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosswalk Redlands, teaching pastor for our global network of churches. Um, but here's the exciting thing. I don't know if you remember this. We used to have a guy who worked here called Isai. Do you remember him? Yeah. Um, he decided to move on to different, um, I wouldn't say better, but for him, uh, different pastures. And if you follow him on Instagram and you've seen the stuff he's composing, like it's just incredible. In two and a half minutes, he can bring you to tears. So we're really blessing Isai and grateful for the work he did here. Moving on. But this position has been open. Our worship arts pastor position has been open, and um, I'm really pleased to announce to you today that we have hired someone for that particular position. His name is Taylor Bartram. This is him and his wife, Carolina. They will be here September 2, and so you need to put it in your, in your calendar to be here September 2 to welcome them to the Crosswalk family and the Crosswalk community. He will be leading our worship arts department and production, and we just can't wait for him to get here. They're moving from Andrews, where he's an associate dean right now at um, one of the dorms or assistant dean, associate, I don't know. Um, but they will be here again September 2. So do two things for me. Before then, go follow him on Instagram and Facebook just for fun to mess with his head a little bit. Um, he's going to think he's very popular, which is great because he will be. And secondly, be here September 2 so we can welcome them as part of our Crosswalk family. All right? All right. We're excited about that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <clears throat> so very good. And um, we are back to our elemental series. And like I said last week, but I'll emphasize it again, make sure you get the series guide, whether you get it on audio podcast, whether you get it delivered to you every single week, whether you download the PDF, which you can do, or whether you take a real actual copy and look through it and read along with us throughout this five-week series. Pastor Dave Ferguson from our Chattanooga campus wrote it, and it's just really phenomenal. I'm really enjoying it every single day, so I hope you are as well. And um, it's, a, it's a Herculean task to get, you know, to write it, edit, edit it, to get it designed, to print it and deliver. So anyway, um, we, we do this for you because we love you and we want you to be moving along. This is part of our discipleship process, if you will, being a student of the Word of God and staying in that. So thank you for that. Now, you know here at Crosswalk, we do seasons of uh, series. And season one of the Elemental series was all about deconstruction, right? We could deconstruct it. And we were kind of left in the rubble, sitting, sifting through our history with our faith. Uh, for some people, their PTSD of faith, the assumptions that we make, our faith tradition versus our actual faith, our hopes, our disappointments, sometimes our doubts. We recognize that we have some inconsistencies and sin of certainties within our faith and confronted those beliefs that needed deconstructing. We established that there were things that were hurting our faith and we had a desire to grow beyond those things. But our houses of faith were too crowded too convoluted, and they needed to be taken apart first. So in season one, that's what we did. And we kind of left you with this, hey, don't start reconstructing yet. Just sit in this for a little while. And then we moved on to the little letters, which was the series we just finished, right? We sojourned through the little letters and saw what John, the last living apostle, the elder, the revelator, would have us focus on. We found that love was the simple command that was from the command from the beginning, 
And we spent time acknowledging the importance of love and where that love comes from. And so now we're here at season two of Elemental, which is a reconstruction process, right? And we will focus on what it means to reconstruct our faith, taking the best of those materials that we took apart and seeing if we can't reconstruct our faith with a new focus, a new foundation, and a new emphasis to bring new life to our faith and our faith tradition. Now, I want to put in a quick caveat here, a quick parenthetical statement, if you would. Because some people have said, you know, sometimes it seems like you're really kind of criticizing our faith tradition that we come from. And um, I want to talk about that just for a moment. I have a tendency to resonate with this quote from Jaroslav Pelikan, who's a theologian um, in, in uh, contemporary theologian. He says, listen, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I suppose I should add, says Pelican, it's traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. So tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are, when we are, and that it is we who have to decide what our faith will be. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time. So all that is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at a supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition, right? So it's easy to say, are we just taking what our parents and grandparents gave us and saying, that's all right, that's all true. It should be this way and it'll be this way forever. There's nothing new under the sun and we certainly can't look at our faith in a new way. Understand this, we are not trying to kill tradition, but traditionalism does kill tradition. Traditionalism kills everything. We are trying to honor tradition with new thinking based on those who have gone before us, those who have sent us on a trajectory with great thinking, great theology, and solidly lived lives. I think of greats in our faith tradition, people such as Fritz Guy, um, who just died last week, People such as Bill Johnson, who was part of our congregation, right? Heppenstahl, who taught grace in the seminary back in the 60s. Raoul Deterin, who I got to take a Christology class from while he was in his 90s. I would even put my dad in this faith tradition and Richard Rice and some really phenomenal contemporary theologians who have led us to a really great place in our faith tradition. And we're trying to honor that tradition with present truth. But present truth means new directions, new thinking, new emphasis, and new discovery. Tradition doesn't answer every question. Rather, it leads us to new questions. And we have to seek out those answers. And sometimes new answers lead to new emphasis in our faith. Because what was emphasized in our faith tradition as we grew might not be what should be emphasized in our faith tradition as we grow. Now, um, we moved my mom to a different living facility, and uh, last week after church, I, we'd gone out to eat, and I was taking her back, and as we were going back into this independent living facility, which is very avenous, by the way, they were having a meeting in the cafeteria, and they were talking about church, right? And so as I took her back, this, this um, elderly woman was saying, well, I, you don't even know what's going on in those churches now. There's just horrible things happening in the churches, and I immediately was like, oh, what are we talking about? Um, <laughs> And then she said a bunch of stuff that sounded a lot like us. Um, and so I'm like, well, let's go in. And my mom's like, please don't, please don't embarrass me. Which, which sounded hauntingly, hauntingly, 
huntingly, it sounded a lot like my 16-year-old who says the same thing to me all the time. Just please don't embarrass me. And she's like, I just moved in here. Please don't embarrass me. I really wanted to know. Listen, this, I understand where this woman was coming from. She's probably in her 90s, and she's really concerned with what's happening with the church and this new stuff, and it's different, and it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for her. And, and, you know, she, of course, didn't think it was right. She thought it was of the devil, which, you know, we can argue that. I, I don't think so. Um, but, but she was scared, right? She was scared because... Well, the unknown is scary. Of course it is. Going, to new, going into new and uncharted territory should be a bit scary. And I, and I got to tell you, I've spoken to so many of you over the last few months who were so blessed and challenged by season one by deconstructing your faith a bit. But you know what? I didn't hear one person say to me, man, through that deconstruction process, I just realized I didn't want faith at all and I'm leaving. I'm not ever coming back to the church. It never happened. It's people saying, listen, this was a great new look at my faith and an opportunity for me to tear down those things that really just maybe didn't matter to me anymore, right? And this reminds me of, of stepping into the unknown. And this reminds me of a story that we all know from scripture, right? It comes from Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus had been teaching and preaching. Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. This is a story of deconstruction and immediate reconstruction. You may not see it, but hopefully by the end of this you will. Jesus smashes preconceived notions of what was possible with faith and the importance of, the, of Jesus as being the object of our faith. So after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from land, for a strong wind had arisen and they were fighting really heavy waves. Now, this is the point in time where in traditional Adventist sermons, you hear about, you know, the geography and why a wind can be whipped up really quickly in that area of Galilee. I think there's more interesting things than that, but sure, that probably can happen. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them walking on the water. I love the way that Matthew just writes this as if it's like, oh, Jesus came through the door. He's not, like for, for Matthew, the super ordinary had become the, the norm, right? The extraordinary was now just the ordinary because he understood who Jesus was. It was, it was not said as if this was something grand and overwhelming. It was just what Jesus did. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came walking towards them, walking on water. When the disciples saw him walking on, on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Now, the reason why they cried out that it's a ghost was probably two reasons. Number one is probably, you know, wind and waves and hard to see. But also, they didn't have a category for what Jesus was doing. They didn't have a place to put that in their lives. It was, it was out of their realm of experience to see something like this. So they were terrified. And by the way, this always happens when we come in contact with, with um, divinity. Whenever we come in contact with divinity, there's first of all an, an incredible expression of fear um, and then usually it turns to worship at the end. But this was an inflection point in their faith. It was when they were going to be pushed to make a choice. They didn't have a category for what was happening. It was outside their worldview at the moment. 
but they were willing to believe in a new category because they were willing to believe in Jesus. As we have deconstructed our faith and broken down some of the categories that we've had, we have to be willing to accept new categories of amazing and supernatural and what God is going to do in your life. We have to be willing to live by faith, which is different than the way we've often lived before. So Jesus recognizes this and he spoke to them all at once. And he said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. Jesus doesn't actually try and convince them that he's not a ghost. He's pretty comfortable in his own skin. What he's doing is he's revealing himself and the power that he has. And he's doing it in a really honest way. He's like, listen, don't worry. It's just me. I'm here. So then Peter does something very out of character for Peter. Peter's the one who, you know, um, takes out a sword and cuts off someone's ear. Peter is the guy who is always running ahead, always, you know, doing all these different things. But in this particular instance, Peter calls to him and says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Now, this is unlike what Peter usually does, but he submits to an invitation as opposed to just jumping forward. He actually surrenders to what Jesus would have him do. And he feels like normally Peter would have just leapt from the boat, but rather he waits. Jesus is sometimes that invitation. So Jesus says, yes, come. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. We all know this story. Jesus obliges and all of Peter's categories are changing, right? He was at an inflection point in his faith. Was he going to trust? And before he trusts, he wanted to see if he was going to be invited. At this point, he steps out of the boat. Now, I don't know if you have ever had an inflection point in your faith or not, but one of those moments when it felt that by the end of the sentence, by the end of the paragraph you're reading, everything's going to change. Whether it's a sermon, a class, a Bible study, a book, a sermon series even. I don't know what it was or how it changed you, but we often come to this inflection point where you know that things aren't ever going to be the same again if you continue down this path. And of course it's scary. Why wouldn't it be? Right? Because we're comfortable. We live comfortable lives and we have a comfortable faith. We've been given all the answers. We were given those to us when we were in elementary school. So we know all the right answers to all the right questions. Make sure you don't ask the wrong questions. Ask the right questions. We've got all the right answers so we're comfortable. We're fine. In fact, our faith feels a lot less like faith and a lot more like tradition because everything's been supplied for us. So of course, the invitation for Jesus, from Jesus to get out of the boat is going to be frightening. It's going to be overwhelming, right? But Peter decides, I'm ready for a new category of faith. I'm ready, I'm ready to find out how firm this foundation that Jesus is building in my life really is. So he steps out into the water. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and he began to sink, right? Save me, Lord, he shouts. And I got to tell you, sometimes we feel like we're drowning in the midst of the change in our understanding of faith, right? Going to new places is scary. Stepping into a new understanding is a scary thing. That's okay. And you have to understand this. We are most vulnerable when we step into the unknown, because we don't know how things work anymore. We don't know what the rules are anymore. I mean, the rules in Peter's life the whole time has been that water is soft and you sink. And then he steps out and the water becomes this firm foundation and he begins to step on it. Then he gets distracted, the winds and the waves. And my bet is he really wanted to be back in the boat, right? Because that's where the safety was. 
our clearly defined understanding of faith, of salvation, and even of Jesus has been put in jeopardy. When Peter left the boat, the hardest step was the first, but the mushiest step, the step that got him in trouble, was the 10th or the 12th, when he probably longed for the safety of the boat. Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him. And he says, listen, you've got so little faith, man. Why did you doubt me? And there it is. Peter longed for the safety of the boat because the safety of Jesus wasn't in the boat. The safety of Jesus was in the storm. And I know it's hard to believe, but the truth is that we are safer in the storm with Jesus than we are in the boat without him. Right? The storm is safer with Jesus. The boat is dangerous without him. And many of us have been going along in our lives of faith in a very comfortable boat, right? We call it our faith tradition or our church family or whatever. We've been going along in faith in this very comfortable boat with all the categories. Outside is water, inside is safety, outside is wind and waves, inside is comfort and unsinkability. The only problem is it's never been true. It's never been true that the boat is safer than the wind and the waves. It all has to do with where you find Jesus. And I have to tell you, I would rather be in the storm with Jesus than in a boat without him. Now, Jesus works in boats too. Don't get me wrong. We know the story of Jesus calming the storm, right? When he was in the boat, it was great. But right now, he's outside the boat. He's in the wind and the waves. Jesus, by the way, could have calmed the storm. He could have calmed the storm and then asked Peter to get out, but he didn't do that. The challenge is to walk on the water in the storm, not in the calm. To trust in the danger, not in the safety. To be at risk of drowning is where faith becomes real. And here's the thing. Peter was never really at risk, right? That's the crux of this whole thing. Peter was never at risk stepping out of the boat because his Savior was waiting for him. His Savior had given him the invitation to step out. Do you think God is going to invite you and then leave you alone to drown? That's not what Jesus does. His Savior was with him in the first step and in the 10th step and in the 12th step. And even when he was up to his waist or up to his neck drowning, Jesus was with him. He was never at any risk. He just felt like he was because the category was new. We have lived comfortable, faith, comfortable lives of faith. We have been in a very comfortable boat. And in fact, when the boat has been challenged, we've actually been chastised that no one should challenge the safety of the boat. I want to tell you this. The boat is nothing without Jesus. And maybe your boat had Jesus and you were one of the blessed few. But as you've deconstructed, what have you found out to be true about the boat? This gets me. When, when they climbed back into the boat, that's when the wind stopped. The storm didn't subside until Jesus was in the boat. The boat is never a safe place without the Savior. But it becomes incredibly safe with community and with, with shelter when Jesus is there. So they figured it out. They went from saying, you're a ghost now to the end. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Which I don't know how many times they did that in the relationship with Jesus, but he must be like, yeah, again. Appreciate you figuring that out again for the first time. 
right? This is the first rule of meeting divinity. You have fear and then you worship. We saw it last week. We see it again this week. And they already knew because they'd encountered Jesus again and again. So, yeah, stepping into the unknown is scary. But reconstruction has to start somewhere. I mean, if we're building a house, not to mix metaphors, but if we're building a house, we deconstruct everything in order to get to the foundation, to see if it has cracks, if it needs repair, or if it's solid. I don't know about you, but I'm one of these people who cleans my garage about every three weeks. And I don't do it because my garage is always clean. I do it because my garage is always not clean. And I need to find that ground again. And every time I clean it, when I clean everything off the ground and I look down, I'm always nervous when I see a crack. Now, I got to understand, I live in California. All of our foundations have a bit of a crack, right? And if you live in a house with a basement in California, you're a weirdo. We don't do basements here, right? We just have our foundation on a ground that's going to be moving. Um, but, but um, you know, we look at our foundations and we want to know that they're solid. When you got to the foundation of your faith, what did it look like? Was it cracked? Was it compromised? Was it falling apart? Or maybe it was solid, but not level. So it was useless and everything that you built upon it wouldn't be true. Was it in need of repair? Or did it just need to be torn out completely so that you could begin anew with a brand new foundation? Our house of faith will only be as strong as the foundation from which we build it. We, we've sung this hymn forever, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The bridge says Christ alone, the cornerstone. This song captures the idea that we see in Scripture again and again and most profoundly expressed in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. It's a statement of inclusion that is both for the Gentiles who would hear it anew and get brand new categories. And it was also for those former Jews who were moving into a Christian faith and were having to deconstruct their Jewish faith and reconstruct their faith with brand new categories of Jesus. Right? And Jesus is encouraging them. And Paul's encouraging them. Together we are in his house. Built upon, the, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus himself. So they're reconstructing in the first century in real time. And they're writing about it as it happens. Hey, here's a new category. This house of faith that you were in, you're in a new house now. We're building it together. And we have to make sure that our foundation, particularly the cornerstone of that foundation, is Christ Jesus himself. By the way, first century, they're using the same metaphors we use. Why? Because we still seek shelter. We still need houses to live in. Then he says, we are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Now, this is fascinating because what they're saying is we're building this house together, but when you recognize that the cornerstone is actually made of Christ Jesus himself, then that cornerstone is the cornerstone not of a house, but of a temple. So you're not just building a house, you're actually building a temple. You are building your life of faith together. When Jesus is the cornerstone, it's not a house, but a holy place. This is why Paul can say stuff like, you are, your body is a temple of God. Your life is a temple where God lives. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Like God inhabits this place. 
He's saying Christ is the invitation. Christ is the foundation. More than that, Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. Get this right and your walls will be true. And by the way, not only will your walls be true, but your walls will no longer be the walls of your house. It will be the walls of a holy temple to God. The Old Testament says that we will be a holy nation, a nation of priests. This is what we're talking about. These metaphors run true through all of Scripture. But you know, the funny thing is, I I think people have a tendency not to believe that, that Christ is a strong enough cornerstone because this cornerstone has been refused again and again and again. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders refuse will become the cornerstone. The first time I heard that was in a Bob Marley song. It's like, that sounds good. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's from scripture, right? Old Testament. God has to be the cornerstone of whatever faith you're building. Peter in Acts 4, in his diatribe to the people, says the stone that they threw away That's the one we're going to build this whole thing on. The truth is, the whole of Christianity has been to deconstruct and reconstruct. This has always been the gospel. And when you get down to those elements, you can begin to build something that makes sense. But if you never deconstruct, your reconstruction is just going to be a puzzle. It's going to be a mystery. If any of you have ever been to the Winchester Mystery House, you know that that place is, is just crazy. This woman thought for some reason that if she continued to build on her home, she would never die. And so she began to do it. She began to build. And, and over years, you end up with rooms that don't have doors, right? doors that open to nothing, stairwells that go up to the ceiling and stop. She just built and built and built until the extraneousness of the house Right? And the detritus that she had put everywhere got to the place that you couldn't even live there anymore. It was too weird. It was too strange. It didn't make sense anymore. And so no one's lived in that house. This is why you need a simple structure. One that begins with a gospel foundation. Because if you have a gospel foundation that is straight and true, your walls will be straight. The beauty of the gospel is that it is the element from which we build everything. It is the prime number that can't be divided. It cannot be broken down any more than it is. It is the foundation because it is the elemental element, the foundation for the life we need, and not just for our life of faith, but for life at all. And the truth is that we need a firm foundation to build upon. But you know what? That foundation doesn't have to be cement because what this story tells us is that Jesus, if he's present, can make any surface a firm foundation, whether it's water or whatever, it doesn't matter because if he's there, it hardens and it solidifies and it becomes straight and true. And then the houses, then the the walls and and the roofs that we build will continue to give us shelter and give us hope. And these will not just be abodes where you dwell, but they will be holy temples dedicated to God, doing the work of God in the world, inviting other people to come in and find shelter and to find hope, understanding that the firm foundation doesn't come from the building materials, but comes from the builder itself. It's Christ who is our firm foundation. It's Christ, the one that we build our lives upon. It's Christ, the one that we build our doctrine and our understanding, our worldview and our categories. 
It's Christ the one who, who makes straight the way and makes an understanding for how we live our lives of faith in a world that's so convoluted and so divided and so misunderstood that we seem like we're the crazy ones because we believe in something. But we believe in Christ because what he has done for us is the gift that is overwhelming and constantly giving. It is the foundation from which we build our lives. And we know that Christ is not gonna leave us. We know that he's not gonna walk away from us because he is the invitation and he is the God who goes with us wherever we go. So don't ever question a foundation of Christ. And if someone says, oh, that's good, but there's more, say, no, no, no. I'm not gonna mix the ingredients of my foundation. It will be Christ, Christ alone and him, the cornerstone. Stand and worship with us today.